0: Hello hello welcome to The Jobistan Podcast Let's give it off to Sean Baig, an American-Canadian researcher, speaker, entrepreneur and a global team leader. Sean created SB Innovations, a research and development company creating affordable, sustainable solutions to pressing global issues. As part of SB Innovations, he founded young scientists and innovators to help teens discover their potential in STEM and grant them the tools to turn their vision into reality. Research-wise, his innovations include a novel work on Alzheimer's disease, early detection and treatment, a cancer sensor chip, alternative prostate cancer treatment and more. He was awarded by numerous prizes on platforms such as the Canadian wide Science Fair, the Abu Expo Science International and Google Science Fair. Also, the ISAF Gang is expanding since Sean won third place in material science and the Patent and Trademark Office Science Society Award and the Young Scientist Award Best in Fair at the Taiwan International Science Fair. He's been invited to speak at TEDx, the United Nations and numerous other places. So now I'm gonna let him do the talking and welcome Sean to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. We want to explore the timeline a little bit. So I suggest hitting it off by dating back a little to the age of 13. What was the defining moment that essentially led you to where you are today?
1: So I think it really was when I was kind of forced to do science fairs at my high school. So um, in Montreal, Canada, at my high school, um, in the program that I was admitted to in the high school uh, curriculum, we were kind of forced to do science fairs. And this kind of got me into the circle. And in my first science fair in grade seven, I was lucky enough to win uh, gold at my school fair and go on to regionals. And when I did that, I realized that you know, you can not only kind of like win money, but travel places. So that was the main reason like I got in at the first, um, at first, but then it really hit me when in grade eight, I did a project on kind of designing a hockey helmet. And when I did this, I realized that although it was just a science fair, I could have kind of a positive impact at the global scale in terms of preventing further injury with this specific helmet and I was able to get kind of mentorship and visit a lab um, here in Quebec uh, for a company called Bauer so Bauer is like one of the leading uh, protective equipment uh, companies in ice hockey and so when I was able to kind of have access to their lab and kind of get mentorship for that first science or project in grade eight it really opened my eyes in terms of um, having a positive impact with just a simple science fair project, and that kind of really got me into um, science fairs and allowed me to pursue other opportunities, and ultimately leading to where I am today. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. So just to clarify, that did you yourself receive the concussion, and that inspired you to design this protective helmet?
1: Yeah, exactly. So in grade eight, I actually received a minor concussion. And actually later on I received another um, kind of major concussion. I was out of school for about three months um, through ice hockey uh, was where my injury occurred and, and that really got me into um, that specific project and designing a, a helmet that kind of could prevent concussions and was different than the, you know, the designs that were predominantly found throughout the market.
0: That's severe. Concussions are no joke. I was reminded that sometimes in movies and short stories, transformation occurs to the protagonist when they receive an injury. And it doesn't have to be necessarily physical, but a shift in your outlook on life or, well, in that case, tapping more into the STEM field, designing that helmet, because the standard method for protecting the players from injury was not working, obviously. And there was a need for an invention like this.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, kind of looking at Mark, um, the helmets at that time, the way it was kind of placed, uh, the materials in the helmet was rigidly placed uh, against the head of, you know, an athlete. And in this manner, um, not all areas of the head can absorb force as it's just rigidly placed against the uh, our heads. But kind of with my design um, and testing out different foams, I realized that having it rigidly uh, not rigidly placed actually and having a bit of space against our own heads and skulls absorb more force and i was kind of inspired by the anatomy of our skull so our brain kind of floats in this fluid and this fluid um is then protected by the skull so i kind of try to replicate that in my helmet so kind of what i did was uh, i used the plastic hard shell kind of resembling the skull, um, the bone itself. And then I tried to have this free floating space between the hard shell of the helmet and our heads. And by allowing this free space, it allowed for more force to be absorbed and actually follow the brain's, uh, the, the head's movement. And in this manner, we were actually able to absorb more force and kind of protect all areas of the head.
0: I see. So providing movement and by mimicking the liquidity, planted that idea. And afterwards, you became eager to face off urgent global problems. So what inspired you to pour into creating solutions, not on the hockey ring, but in a medical field?
1: I was always very interested in kind of the medical sciences. Um, as I still, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be a doctor. Uh, like a in neurosurgery or, or some sorts, uh, but stay uh, predominantly in the healthcare field. And so I realized, you know, after that helmet project that I could in fact have, you know, somewhat of a positive change through a simple science fair project. And that's when I realized that through the science fairs, I can actually shift into more of a the medical fields. And my first kind of medical science project was in like the year after in grade nine, and I realized, you know, prostate cancer is one of the most common cancers in the world amongst men. And so uh, that really inspired me to kind of tap into the medical field.
0: It's really interesting because the, although the awareness of cancer prevalence in the U.S. improves and there are medical advances, Prostate cancer has largely been absent from the list of major success stories. You've investigated prostate cancer. What did your tool provide? How did you approach the problem?
1: Yeah, so that year, uh, it was more uh, in grade nine at first, kind of focused on the treatment aspect because prostate cancer, like you said, Um, Is not uh, have been there's no success stories coming out of that regard as it's very invasive can uh, spread to other parts of the body and so what i did was i tested an agent that was tested on other cancers but never on prostate cancer and i saw that um, through my testing that it was not only able to actually kill the prostate cancer cells but it actually worked better than the standard chemotherapy at the time rapamycin um in terms of killing the prostate cancer cells. And then the following year, I actually um kind i did a detection tool for bladder cancer but later on found that it can actually be implemented for prostate cancer as kind of an early diagnosis like you mentioned is essential in terms of these types of cancers
0: basically it killed the bad guys and let the healthy cells remain of course bladder cancer affects both men and women but you found the link between the two cancers you said that the bladder cancer strip could be used for monitoring the early detection of prostate cancer. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So um, basically, that, that project the year after the the prostate cancer treatment project in grade ten, I designed this kind of paper sensor strip that, by using a urine sample, um, will let us know if an individual has bladder cancer or not. So it's really kind of like a pregnancy test, a modified version of an ELISA test, and a simple color change can just resemble the presence of this disease. And I later on um, kind of um, made a secondary test where not only with a urine sample, um, kind of detecting a biomarker of the disease of bladder cancer, uh, we are actually able to see not only if they have the disease, but at what age they'll develop the first stage of the cancer, which is kind of a big um, it's a game changer in terms of preventative measures that can be taken in place to treat an individual and prevent, you know, the death toll of this specific cancer. And so I, after further testing, we realized that, you know, it can, this method of testing with a paper censorship can actually detect biomarkers in not just the urine, but any liquid secreted through the human body, such as, you know, blood, saliva, sweat, and, um, A bunch of diseases emit biomarkers and all these different um, kind of liquids uh, being excreted through the body. It's just a matter of if we find a specific protein that's found in different concentrations due to a disease, we can actually implement and kind of simply alter the paper sensor strip and use it for any disease that does fire, like the the protein
0: has the immense potential to be used for detecting other diseases. And now you are expending use in medical fields and healthcare overall to produce this uh, affordable solution.
1: Exactly. Like it, it actually costs to produce this paper censorship, um, specifically for bladder cancer. It costs it around uh, 1.5 cents Canadian to produce. So that's just, um, it's a lot more cheap and affordable wow. compared to other methods. Uh, you know, specifically on bladder cancer, what's really um, what they use to detect it is a cystoscopy. Now, for those who don't know what a cystoscopy is, it's very invasive. It's a camera inserted up through the urethra. And I mean, no one especially the males they don't kind of want cameras being shoved up those those specific areas and and the worst part about it is that not only is it painful and all that but um it only detects the disease during the later stages so if we can kind of detect it during the earliest stages uh, it really changes the game in terms of preventative um, measures that can be undergone
0: yeah keeping it pg on the <laughs> Absolutely, it's uh, economically viable. Comparing the fact that cancer can be so costly for many people, this cancer trip is affordable and can save eventually many lives.
1: Yeah, that's that's the plan.
0: (laughs) Moving into another field, the current diagnostic methods used are not suitable for early onset dementia and your solution, although gives light in the darkness. So how did you tackle the problem and how did you have the idea to tap into that field?
1: Yeah, so this was um, kind of the most recent research project that I've um, kind of pursued um, for the past two years now. So I was really um, kind of introduced to it when my grandfather was diagnosed with vascular dementia. And so this disease, you know, I was able to see firsthand, you know, the kind of the, the negative effects that you see on a person. So not only does it affect their physical and kind of mental uh, capabilities and their cognitive decline, but it's very visible and very evident in kind of a, a small time frame as there's drastic changes happening. And the most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's. And after kind of further researching, and I saw that one in three seniors will actually be diagnosed with disease in their lifetime. So this is a very big number, and after realizing, kind of looking into how they detect it, there's no real way. There's 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 kind of three avenues that you can go to detect the disease. One for for sure, uh, for sure diagnosis would be an autopsy. Well, you're not going to detect, um, you're not going to kill someone just to see if they have a disease or not, because that's kind of counterintuitive. There's also a Uh, kind of cognitive testing so we're seeing kind of their memory uh, seeing their quick thinking and short-term memory skills and so this kind of has uh, a variety of kind of side effects as it can lead to a misdiagnosis because there's other diseases obviously that goes into someone's uh, cognitive abilities and lastly there's a lumbar puncture so a lumbar puncture is very invasive, it measures the amount of amyloid beta plaque, so this protein that causes the disease, that causes neurons to die, um, is found in the cerebrospinal fluid. But most like recent literature suggests that this kind of protein is found in the same concentrations of healthy individuals. So knowing all this, I kind of wanted to find a way to detect the disease. Early on, as this is not something that's kind of currently available, um, but also do so in a manner that is minimally invasive or not not invasive whatsoever. And so I kind of saw that there's this protein called amyloid beta oligomers, which leads into plaques and these plaques kind of build up in the brain and cause uh, neurons to die. But before it builds up in these plaques, there's these beta ligomers, which if we can detect, it's found up to 45 years before the first stage is kind of reached. And so essentially at birth, if we can kind of detect this protein, we can kind of detect this disease from happening in an individual's lifetime. And so um, that's kind of where the darkness comes in. The brain is a hard kind of a very sensitive organ in our body and we can't kind of do uh, intense x-ray machines as this can kind of deteriorate our neurons but uh, i was actually able to find a way where we attach to these proteins that cause the disease and if it does so it'll light up and this light can kind of be detected in a non-invasive manner
0: so that's why your project was entitled lighting of the brain
1: exactly so essentially how it works is this molecular probe uh, is injected into a person's bloodstream it'll make its way to the brain and light up And it'll light up if it detects this specific protein. And this can kind of be detected using an FNR machine, which is um, kind of a cap that you see on shows like um, Stranger Things. It's just a very non-invasive simple cap. All hospitals uh, or clinics usually have them. It's very cheap and affordable. And so essentially uh, this can detect light being emitted from the brain. So the more light, the more of this protein, meaning the later stages of disease.
0: And then you can measure the optical properties and receive data in that way.
1: Exactly. So um, that was kind of the main goal: was to see if uh, this probe can actually emit light in the near infrared region, and its different intensities correlate with different um, kind of stages of disease. And that was actually the main uh, focus on my project. But then I actually saw that it actually can be used as a treatment, where it stays attached to these amyloid beta plaques the proteins that are causing the disease and it brings it back out of the brain filtered through the rest of the kind of cardiovascular system filtered through the kidneys and actually excreted through the urine so essentially you can pee out alzheimer's in in the project
0: <laughs> i read that on um, on your i think taiwan post that you mentioned it to one of the judges and i just was reminded that it wouldn't just say in that way that you're in trouble for saying that
1: i thought they would not take it (laughs) take it well but obviously they found it funny and they they found a good transition but that's like a very simple way i like to explain my project people seem to remember that and i guess the judges seemed to like that (laughs) a bit they 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 laughed it off they enjoyed it yeah i meant
0: like urine as urine um so yeah you know I like that you put the fun aspect um, to your project as well, because we I think there is a stereotype about scientists that you have to be this boy doll, um, someone who just, you know, stays within the waters, but essentially innovation is about breaking the status quo. The, the project is interviewing in many ways because AD affects so many individuals. I'm really sorry to hear about your grandfather because in my near vicinity as well. I could witness that the greatest enemy, when it comes to dementia, is time. Essentially, and after a while, when the early onset is gone, you experience an exponential decline in mental and physical abilities, and it's very sad.
1: Yeah, I totally agree, and and it's it's difficult not only for Alzheimer's disease, but um, I think for other diseases in the brain. Um, such as Parkinson's or kind of glioblastoma. And it's a big problem across the board because kind of getting drugs into the brain is very hard. The blood-brain barrier, the, the thing that kind of protects our brain from all bad stuff, blocks roughly 90% of all designed drugs. So it's a big problem. But that's, I think, another cool facet about that specific project where um, this molecular probe design can actually be implemented as a drug delivery system as by simply switching kind of a specific um, for like part of the antibody use, you can actually use it for any other disease in the brain. And I think that's kind of opens up new avenues.
0: It's really difficult to, to get through the barrier and it just says no to therapeutics. I remember when I was um, researching at a pharmaceutical company that they were just testing by my side an artificial lipid bilayer model and see how therapeutics can go through the barrier. It represents a problem to to many companies. In your project, you had a receptor-mediated transcytosis. Is it a type of transcellular transport, like a clathrin-dependent endocytosis?
1: So how it works is, through receptor mediated transitosis. So um, kind of how basically the, the, the design of the molecular probe is this bispecific antibody that's attached to a carbon dot. Now a carbon dot is the uh, nanoparticle that emit light in the near infrared region. That's like kind of lighting up the brain. That's how we're detecting it. But the bispecific antibody itself is formed from two fragments. So essentially like a normal antibody can attach to one unique antigen. But on this one, it can attach to two separate unique antigens so on one side we have an anti-transferment receptor antibody which um, for those that are not kind of familiar with like biochemistry what it does it attaches to a receptor on the blood-brain barrier it's brought across and due to its low affinity it's not as strong to attach anymore once it crosses the barrier and enters the brain it'll it'll be released into the to the brain and kind of be able to attach to um, the plaques in the brain.
0: Yeah, thanks for the explanation, because I wanted to point it out for um, listeners who might not have a background in, in biochemistry. In terms of diseases, I wanted to bring it up in the podcast because it's a relevant issue. Could you expand on how you are helping healthcare workers battling against COVID-19?
1: Yeah, totally. I think, um, like you said, uh, this is an interesting time for everyone. Not only is there um, kind of wide consequences of this disease kind of breaking out everyone uh, has no more school has to kind of self-quarantine but I think this quarantine you know gives us a lot of free time to work on solving this problem together collaboratively and so kind of a few I've been actually able to work on a few things regarding kind of COVID-19 one of them actually being with a few ISA finalists that have been on this podcast before, um, kind of like Brian Wu and, and and friends like that um, are actually, we're working on kind of these drug designs and, um, against COVID-19, but as well, here in Montreal, one of the hospitals, the Montreal general hospital launched a challenge for, uh, creating this ventilator for $200,000. And so, uh, kind of, you have to create a ventilator from scratch. So, uh, myself along with a few other ISAF finalists and kind of physicians and engineers were designing this uh, ventilator uh, for this challenge it's been really fun I learned a lot I'm I'm usually like a biochem kind of um, med kid so I've been actually able to learn a lot in terms of engineering and and stuff like that I've been actually also um, along with the not-for-profit I started we've There's a Prusa design uh, by Prusa for face shields that was released and approved by uh, uh, like many um, health ministers across the world. So it was actually first um, designed by kind of Prusa in the Czech Republic. And we've been actually gathering 3D printers. Not just students with 3D printers, but we've actually been able to get um, kind of the Canadian Space Agency, car companies, uh, Nike and Adidas, you know, Bauer to kind of print these face shields. And we've been uh, assembling them and actually delivering it to local hospitals, not only in Montreal, but across Canada. And that's um, kind of what I've been working on during this quarantine.
0: (laughs) That's a really an amazing initiative. First of all, shout out to the ISO Gang and Brian Wu, who yeah. has already been on the podcast in episode two, so um, check it out. But it really is a pressing issue because, as you mentioned, the Czech Republic, I have friends from there who told me that because of the low supply they had experienced, they had to utilize plastic bottles to essentially create these face shields. I think it's uh, very inspiring that you have the support behind your back to work on such an important project like this, and knowing that you are helping the heroes who are uh, fighting for lives on the front line.
1: Yeah, totally. These people, um, kind of physicians and nurses and all the healthcare workers, um, I'm inspired every day by them. Uh, a lot of people in my family actually work in the healthcare field, and so knowing that I'm um, kind of there uh, fighting uh, and are the ones protecting and working for us. The least we can do is kind of like print for them. And, and that's kind of the message we've been going by. So yeah, totally.
0: You've mentioned that you are normally a mad and a biochem whiz kid. What was one thing that surprised you about the engineering aspect of the project?
1: I realize that there's so much that goes into it. They're more a uh, very hands-on. <laughs> they, I realize how much uh, liberty. It's very cool in engineering, where kind of in the biochem uh, medical fields, where you you really need to be in the lab, um, and that is a specific time period. You can't just do it anywhere. But in terms of engineering project, mecha engine, and especially specifically with this kind of this ventilator challenge. We can just three D print it in our basement, sometimes kind of build it in our basement. So it's pretty funny to see how um, it's it's a different workflow and you can just work through the night at home in your in your PJs, just printing and, and with your three D printers, just getting materials across and and uh, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. It's very interesting. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a quarantine comfortable. Also, you cannot order um, antibiotics to be delivered to your home or at least, I don't think so. So uh, doing the DIY project is a little bit easier when it comes to engineering.
1: Exactly. I I totally feel the same.
0: Also, part of SB Innovations that I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you founded um, Young Scientists and Innovators to help teens turn their ideas into reality. I'm interested to hear about the background of um, how you became an entrepreneur and what is this incubation program all about?
1: Yeah, so uh, Young Scientists and Innovators um, was founded with uh, myself and another uh, actually ISAF finalist from Canada uh, who. You know, growing up, we've been given these incredible opportunities through science fairs, you know, science fairs kind of uh, allowed us to pursue cool projects on the side, and and cool speaking engagements and, and whatnot and work with kind of big companies in terms of making our kind of ideas into a reality. But the reality of the science world is that you know what happens after these science fairs you know often nothing because projects die and that's just the way it is and uh, not everyone has access to kind of these resources to take their ideas to the next level or they don't even know about the science fair world at least around me here in Montreal there's a bunch of schools or students who just didn't realize you know what you can actually get from science fairs or hackathons you know people just think from what you see in shows like there's kind of baking soda volcanoes and whatnot but there's actually cool science being um kind of coming out of these fairs just like your projects that you've you've made and and a lot of other people that you have had featured on this podcast they're doing incredible work that is truly changing the world but it's not kind of widely known um amongst at least north america so the goal of young scientists and innovators with ysi is to kind of inspire, empower, and promote STEM to youth um, based on kind of our talks. We give talks and host workshops and conferences to kind of show the, tr- the true um, kind of science for our world and the opportunities that you can get. And so we also started the incubator, like you mentioned, through it, where we have connected um, high-end science for projects and turn them into a company by the end of a 12-week program. So, so far, we have done kind of intense mentorship with uh, people in the Montreal area and connect them with kind of patent agents, um, investors, you know, venture capitalists, uh, you know, product managers, really all the tools that is necessary and teach them the basis of entrepreneurship. And I think this is a cool um, time, um, especially with uh, high school students doing science for products where they have a lot of free time, they can uh, have kind of no adverse effects if all goes south you know they're just after all high school students and 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 you can there's no real consequence to failing at this time period which i think is interesting and so through this incubation and kind of mentorship programs we've we've had uh, we've had you know incredible people ranging from you know treatments for neurodegenerative diseases to kind of um you know sustainable energy Kind of tools, and and it's a real cool um, network and community of people we've been actually able to to grow.
0: It truly is an impactful work because, just as you've said, the research goes beyond explosive oh. volcanoes and colorful solutions. That's the eye candy in the beginning.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> There is a lot yeah. more that goes into it. I also witnessed the problem that people going to science fairs, they do the different projects, but it stops up very well. So it might look good on the college application, but they don't really get to see the whole picture and what could grow out of it. You are giving them the tools to turn their project into something that also brings them economical benefit teaching them what a a pitch is what a one-liner is or a value proposition is so useful because they acquire the tools that they can implement in real life scenarios
1: yeah i totally agree and and the The people that are coming out and kind of working with us and in this kind of community of change makers is quite inspiring and and just and seeing them learn and progress so easily. These are not kind of tools you learn in school, sadly, but once you do learn them, you have them for life and it really changes the game in terms of not only the rest of kind of your science fair Kind of career but as well on the sides beyond the science bears, and kind of taking your idea to the next level
0: exactly and and creating a safe space for them to further explore and evaluate their ideas i work in hungary with um, different startups and and global incubator programs and they also want to invite the youth into this world because sometimes it's not the lack of interest that keeps them away but the lack of information that is transmitted to them so if you hit the receptors then that's a good sign and that's why stem outreach is so crucial
1: totally yeah you said it perfectly
0: (laughs) and i also like that you listed some of the innovations that were born under the umbrella i don't know can, can i say that researcher family or very supportive alumni group that has been formed
1: yeah totally there's been cool products uh being brought out um, even, like, especially in the, uh, the community here in Montreal, there's people kind of um, discovering, like, ancient mine ruins uh, overlaying stars of South America. There are people making um, super dams, kind of taking uh, all the toxins and, and CO2 in the water and actually producing it into energy and oxygen uh, emission. There are a lot of cool kind of research projects coming up. And now we're trying to actually uh, create an online forum where um, we can not just have people locally in this area, but uh, people around the world, you know, not everyone has resources in their areas. And so that's something we're um, planning on launching later this year.
0: Awesome. So you are expanding the network and bringing these innovative solutions to to the public and for the benefit of others. Yeah,
1: that's the goal. (laughs)
0: We've been, well, kind of touching the, the topic of science fairs, but let's um, get deeper into that because you participated at several international science fairs and expos, such as ISEF, the White Science Fair, Abu Dhabi, Taiwan International, and Google Science Fair. So what do you most enjoy about competing at those platforms?
1: I think what I most enjoy is what probably any other science fair kid would say, and that would be that the people you meet And kind of um, the ability to not just talk about your research by with people who kind of get it, but you're with like minded peers, and they're all doing incredible stuff. You know, at first, you know, I was very, uh, you know, when I first got into science fairs, uh, like 13, I thought everyone would be like such like nerdy kind of people, you know, the stereotypes, but I was so wrong. There's people kind of top athletes in the world. There are incredible musicians and um, everyone just so well balanced and driven. And it's incredible kind of community that, um, you know, we've all been able uh, as science fair kind of kids to form and, and you have a great network that is formed and the experiences you get, not just presenting your research and, Uh, All the science for aspects where you learn how to get judged, you know how to present your ideas, you know how to kind of get a point across and kind of sell a project. And not only the basic kind of rules of the scientific method, but you actually are able to kind of get this cool community where you can work on products later on, for example. If a pandemic breaks out to make a ventilator, you have a cool group of people to call upon and kind of work on side projects and it's it's very inspiring to see. What
0: you said about the other researchers is so true because they are so well-rounded and so accomplished, but also they have this open-mindedness that does not only translate into discovering... New solutions, but in interpersonal relationships as well. So when I entered science fairs, and I think you can attest to that, you didn't feel the pressure, or that you didn't find a channel to talk to the other person, but it was like an instant ease that came in talking to other uh, fellow researchers.
1: Yeah, exactly, and I think it's a kind of. If I look back, there's people who I've met at like Canada-wide science fair in grade like nine. And so like five years later, I'm still talking to them every day. I think um, the people like these true, uh, amazing individuals who are just amazing friends at the end, they all were all like minded, I think. And, and it's cool um, that, you know, especially when you reach kind of people like the likes of ICEF and these international competitions, you have people all around the world who are doing amazing stuff. And you can just call any day. And I think it's super cool. And especially here in Canada, I think there's a big culture in terms of going to these competitions. You you get so close with your teammates. Um, you know, if I think about about all the amazing opportunities uh, and the kind of like experiences, looking back, a lot of them come from kind of um, the rest of you know, the team that you you go with to these competitions and all the experiences that you get together and share are are. Quite Quite incredible, yeah.
0: About the Canada-wide science fairs, I've interviewed Manning with V at UCIS and uh, also Brandon and what I got um, out from their responses is that it's so huge and I think that it's very inspirational to see that there is the culture of doing science fairs in Canada. Even though you might feel like you're pressured into this or, you know, it's, well, an inconvenience in the beginning, you still get a taste of the scientific world and you might might end up liking it and becoming an entrepreneur just as yourself
1: totally yeah the culture uh in terms of science fair culture here in canada is incredible um you know you meet not only crazy amazing people like brendan brendan's one of my very good friends um and uh, i think especially in terms of canada-wide science fair it's not really just the science um there's so many kind of field trips and activities that you do during the week and you get to kind of uh, explore a different city in Canada that you might have not ever kind of gone to. And for that reason, um, I think the community that's built uh, here in Canada is very close for that reason across across the country. And uh, in terms of kind of cross collaboration, it, it's cool to see after these science fairs, how the alumni actually uh, work on cool projects, you know, start not-for-profits or, or things like that. And it's really cool to see.
0: So great. I know... Well, based on the ISAF experience, that your pins were one of the most wanted uh, pins at the science fair, along with the koalas. It was really on the top, and also the fashion merch was on point, so you couldn't miss um, the Canadian red hoodies. <laughs> Talking about ISAF, um, if you could do a mental highlight reel. Which memorable moments would you include? From ISAF or from other science fairs?
1: First, a uh, comment on the the ISAF Canada, I remember walking into the pin exchange just getting bombarded with people uh, w- uh, with the pins. I didn't realize how much of value the Canada pins, even though it's just a flag, uh, was worth. And so it was pretty funny to see. And yes, I, I, I agree. We take pride in, in the outfits that we, we get to wear. Canada is, I mean we're the neighbors of the usa and that's all that's all that people think about but yeah it was cool (laughs) cool to to stick out at ISAF. but uh yeah i think in terms of kind of like a highlight reel i think my first canada wide science fair i've been to that was an incredible opportunity um just going and traveling away from home for the first time um and participating in kind of the highest level that I've ever been at that point, um, was kind of a highlight for me. Then kind of Google science fair, but most specifically ICEF, you know, reaching and, and being in the top of Canada, you know, Canada only sends 14, 13 projects each year. So it's a very small number. Um, at Canada wide science fair, they announce, like they, they give the stats each year and it's really, if you get selected to go to ICEF from, canada you're in the top 0.05 being in that community and kind of group of people is really cool and humbling and and an honor kind of to experience but just meeting the incredible people all around the world and sharing your ideas at kind of the highest level kind of the olympics of science fairs um was kind of like a dream come true and then lastly i would say was you know after doing science fairs for eight years my last science fair was just um, in February at the Taiwan international science fair and kind of having the last science fair was like across the world from me. It's I've never, um, it was the first time I was in Asia. And so to have my last science fair there and actually to, I was lucky enough to win, Um, kind of the Young Young Scientist Award and so that was kind of like a dream come true kind of winning at an international competition and it being my last fair it was really cool Uh, I just remember being up on stage with the vice president of Taiwan and just realizing it was it was a crazy year in terms of that specific Alzheimer's research project Uh, and looking back that was probably the the biggest highlight so yeah.
0: It definitely crowns science fair journey you've took upon and I guess standing on the stage and i have experienced as well that it's such an overwhelming experience and I think it's related to the fact that you've put in so much dedication and effort into your work that you get a cherry on top you know deep down that you didn't do it for the award for a greater purpose but it still is nice to to receive that kind of recognition
1: i totally agree yeah i mean obviously it kind of um kind of allows you to realize that all the all-nighters and all the late nights at the labs were worth (laughs) it but i think um kind of i think any science fair kid can attest to it where Um, you work so hard, you really focus on your research for so much time. And then it's really at these points where, you know, at the end of the science fair, um, kind of at the award ceremony kind of allows you to pause and reflect on kind of all the stuff you've done and really appreciate how far you've come. And yeah, like you said, it's a cherry on top and no one really does it for the awards or the money, but, um, it's those things that kind of allow you to look back and reflect on all the work you've done.
0: Absolutely. And before the reflection, it's great that parties are also provided um, during these experiences uh, just like the mixer or um, the pen exchange. Also the conversations that you have with other scientists that might last until 2 a.m. in the morning. You will never forget them. <laughs> and you've also spoken to over 10,000 students through interactive workshops and speeches. And now I would like to ask you to uh, share the central message that you now want to give to young people.
1: I always say this kind of same along the same message at all these talks where all around the world you know the youth like people our age are always told we're the next lawyers doctors activists engineers we are the change makers and we are the leaders of tomorrow we do not need to wait until tomorrow to lead and i think um, this is an important message to get across because you know like we were touching about about earlier where People don't often kind of like students don't often realize, you know, you can do cool projects through science, whereas you can do cool projects through a hackathon. You see people that have been featured on this podcast. They're all doing amazing stuff and you don't really need to wait until you're a PhD or you're in university. You can do this now and you can and, you know, with the Internet and kind of resources available people can have a cool change and really in science it's not about you know how smart you are how old you are if you have something in mind you're driven to make a change and you have the perseverance kind of to make something work that's what makes great scientists and um I hope people um, kind of can realize that.
0: It's such a vital message because just as you said, your age or any other external factors do not predestinate you for a defined future. And I think it's so important because if you believe about yourself that you're able, then you will be able to succeed and accomplish just because you're in that mind state. What you share in these messages is inspirational and it just lies the flame in the hearts of young people, um, believing that, yes, uh, they have the potential to be the future leaders of tomorrow.
1: Yeah, totally. I think um, once people realize that and kind of get that in their head and realize, um, you know, that it doesn't have to wait, you can actually do stuff now. Great stuff happens. And, and that's kind of the goal um, with YSI is to help kids realize their kind of untapped potential.
0: Have you always been confident uh, talking in front of larger audiences? Or did it take a little bit of time to get accustomed to people staring at you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. So growing up, I was very, very shy. I I still think I'm I'm pretty shy. But um, in terms of speaking, I think science fairs played a huge role into that. I think that with science fairs, you're kind of being judged, you know, even at ISAF, you're being judged by like a kind of Nobel laureate at some times, at, at some points, and, and kind of to be calm in the moment and know that you are kind of the expert on your project, you know best what you're about to say and what you're talking about. And so I think it's really cool thing that you should drill in your head, kind of be confident. Um, that allowed me to kind of be more confident in terms of speaking to students and stuff like that. And I think it's different kind of a message being talked, like spoken from kind of people our age, Um, as opposed to kind of teachers where, um, you know, the teachers are not kind of living the moment. I think people our age are where we are kind of doing cool stuff and and the students are more receptive to hearing a message be kind of from a younger perspective. And I think that's more kind of receptive uh, from the younger audiences and even the older audiences. That I find is more kind of scary for me where, They'll think I'm some hotshot. I think I'm a hotshotter or like being cocky going up on stage saying, oh, this is what I did. This is what I did. But um, I think with those, uh, I've been able to be more calm over the years and just know that I'm kind of kind of the expert on my project. I get more nervous in terms of presenting school projects than giving those talks, which is funny. But I remember um, being just, if I look back on when I was most nervous, probably when um, at this event, uh, Cooperathon, where – it was kind of being a a keynote speaker and panel with Chris Hadfield and that was just super nerve-wracking like talking to someone who's um, you know accomplished so much been to space like the top kind of astronaut in the world Um, that was probably when I was most nervous but other than that I think knowing that you're the expert on your project and and just being true to that is what allowed me to kind of calm my nerves.
0: So you were literally starstruck. <laughs>
1: I was, literally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also we can conclude that practice makes perfect. Through your experience and uh, your training at science fairs that you agree justice and also in the fact that Uh, Living the moment is important. That's the good type of hedonism that should be enforced. Also great to hear about your development as a speaker. And just as you said that there are people who are shy and and you were shy, but um, there are also the other kind of spectrum, but I experienced that I was at first the dynamite, you know, who doesn't really pause and walks around the stage that literally turns into a semi-dancing class. Um, but uh, one has to <laughs> <laughs> calm down and the other has to move into a different direction. But we all seek that equilibrium when it comes to delivering speeches.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> there is a department in the podcast um, that is called the If Questions. And we are just playing the possible scenarios or the impossible ones. So if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why?
1: So. I think I would have to say Dr. George Church. Dr. George Church is—he's in fact alive. He's an incredible professor out of Harvard University. I was actually able to—I um, had a—I had a speaking engagement in in Cambridge at Harvard, and and he was giving a talk right um, at this event, and he was kind of sharing the stuff he's done, and this. I've never, it's like he does science for projects each day, like a new science for product each day. And it really kind of got me interested in kind of, um, you know, pursuing kind of an academia approach and not going into medicine, but really research. This person has, he talked about in his speech where he um, was kind of trying to genetically modify elephants to mammoths based on its, efficiency in terms of producing wool and meat and, and more at a better pace and and limiting uh, carbon emissions as opposed to like cows he was kind of uh, talking about a tinder but for kind of preventing genetic mutations where he was just saying how like you're compatible with 97 of the population and the other three percent will just allow your offspring to kind of be like predisposed to um, diseases and so kind of he uploaded like millions of people's DNA sequences. Uh, and through this kind of, um, kind of Tinder like app, he just programmed it so that people not kind of have options with the people who are the 3%. And so he does like these crazy research projects each day. Uh, and he's such an incredible, like kind of, um, inspiring individual to me. So having dinner with him and just picking his brain and seeing what he's working on each day would be, um, quite intriguing, I must say.
0: (laughs) That really is mind-blowing. Created this gene-mapping platform in the Tinder era. (laughs) If you really had the opportunity, then where would you take him? To Canada? Or would you remain in Cambridge? What would be your game plan?
1: Um... I don't know. So I I was actually born in Boston. And so um, I moved to Montreal in Canada when I was like five years old. And so um, I would definitely stick in Boston because I love the city. And I would take them to um, this amazing Chinese food place called Chili Duck. So I would definitely do that. It sadly has closed down since, but if it was still open, I would definitely take them to Chili Duck.
0: Staying truthful to the name, would you eat Beijing duck, or uh, Baozi, or steamed buns? When, what would you offer?
1: I'd offer them the the good uh, the, the Thai Thai noodles uh, that they they serve. They serve the best uh, Kung Pao chicken and uh, Thai Thai noodles, so definitely that that would be the go to.
0: That's great. <laughs> and if you really have the dinner, you have to make sure to uh, post the photo on that. I will. <laughs> Now here comes a section called the this or that game and as the name suggests you are going to choose either or. Now the first one. um, Sticking with the food department a little bit. Ice cream or frozen yogurt?
1: Ice cream for sure. Frozen yogurt. I I can't stand frozen yogurt. It's all about ice cream.
0: Okay, let's ditch Froyo. And what flavor?
1: It has to be the go-to. The go-to is vanilla ice cream dipped in Belgium chocolate. That's the best.
0: Yeah, the combo that lasts through all the new flavors. (laughs) Have a plan or go with the flow? Have a plan. Designing a timetable and having a structural mindset instead of going in and taking a deep plunge.
1: Yeah, no, uh, if it's not, it has to be on my Google Calendar. If if it's not on my Google Calendar, I don't know. I don't know if I could go with the flow. (laughs) Yeah, I think all all my 30-minute all periods of my life has been planned on a Google Calendar. So,
0: <laughs> Wow. Really interesting to hear. I know that a lot of scientists have, of course, a detailed mindset, and I had to learn in the microbiolab and throughout the journey that it's um, great to keep everything reported. Over the time, I also learned that keeping a journal doesn't do any bad to you. But the Google Calendar strategy is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Ebook or paperback?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say paperback. It smells better.
0: Right. You, you cannot have the spell for ebooks, or at least for now. Yeah. <laughs> There's a special feel to actually holding a book in your hands. Feels a little bit of a time travel, especially when it's about an antique book and you feel that you found a little bit of treasure for yourself.
1: I totally agree.
0: Words now. I know that you've played hockey, but hockey or lacrosse?
1: Oh, that's a hard question. Wow. I think this is the hardest question today um i'd have to say ice hockey yeah
0: usually the hockey rings are rounded at the edge right yeah i guess that's probably why because if they were 90 degrees they would melt
1: i never thought about it like that that probably makes a lot more sense why I just I thought ninety degrees would just make no sense if a puck was like to be shot around, it'll just get stuck in the corner. But with rounded edges it would go. But yes. It will melt easier if it's ninety degrees.
0: <laughs> yeah, then not <that> temperature related. <laughs> well, if it would be then it would be swimming in pads.
1: <laughs> That'd be hard.
0: I know you had the first time to travel to Asia this February. If um you were designing your bucket list would you choose europe or asia as your next destination
1: oh for next gen uh for next destination has to probably be europe but yeah considering what's going on now i don't know but yeah definitely europe once this is all over
0: well one benefit in this entire situation that at least flights are cheap <laughs> but uh, we want oh, very true <laughs> There was this guy and um, I read an article about him that he was like, I don't care. We live once and he took the risk to travel around the world. But it's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, courageous uh, plan to, use, to say at least.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, when I was coming back from Taipei like a month ago, was just crazy. It was like as crazy as it is here um at that time like a month ago coming back and seeing everyone on the plane i don't know how everyone was doing it definitely not going on a plane anytime soon
0: (laughs) yeah or in in lab mask and lab coat and all the equipment but it's it really is impossible because now they're Conducting research, that the virus can stay on metal for three or four days, and it doesn't die. So everything you literally touch is Corona infected. When <laughs> when you were in Taiwan, did you have to wear masks? Were there any safety precautions um, that you had to follow?
1: Oh yeah, that was. Uh, you can definitely ask more. Um... To Brendan on that matter, because Brendan and I, when we went, uh, we were forced kind of to wear masks during judging and setting up our posters. So it's very interesting um, not seeing the people's facial expressions while presenting your project, which was a very big change. for me. But uh, yeah, we would have to get our temperature taken every time we entered a building, like a museum or or our hotels, even like going to breakfast in our hotel. We had to get our temperature taken. It was it was very intense. Uh in terms of that even uh going there like on our flights they would kick out people with a chinese passport which was interesting um to say the least but uh they were even doing that so yeah their their measures were pretty strict i mean looking looking on the results now taiwan has kept it to a minimum so i guess what they're doing is right but yeah it's very intense
0: they acted fast and wanted to keep everyone safe. I'm. Mean, it must have been really different for you to present, having that voice reduction effect. In regards to Taiwan's success, it really is outstanding because they also implemented AI and big data to collect information from healthcare systems. They really had a success story. Yeah,
1: and seeing it firsthand, I was I was very impressed. Like I felt very safe just walking around the city, and uh, everyone was just doing proper preventative measures, uh, keeping distance, washing hands. Uh, But while still uh, kind of not stopping life, uh, like it does feel now, like everyone's like, it feels like life's on pause. But over there, uh, you can go hiking, everyone is very respective of the measures to prevent diseases so um, yeah it's very uh, it's very cool what they were able to do there.
0: That's great staying within the borders of the four walls at home is is interesting just as you (laughs) mentioned in the podcast that it also gives you the ability to pour more um, energy and time into developing your skills in different fields taking online classes many classes at Ivy League schools are free now so there is a lot of possibility out there to invest more more, not just in yourself, but doing projects that might benefit others.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very unique, interesting time for everyone. And uh, if you can kind of create use, use uh, out of this time, uh, it'll be really cool to see um, how many different perspectives have been changed uh, after we're all out of quarantine and out of our kind of houses and rooms and, and seeing how much everyone has learned or done over their their uh, quarantine time, and
0: also uh, a new study showed that there's going to be an increase in divorces and an increase in Corona babies as well. <laughs> so it definitely will have an effect. Maybe a new baby boomer generation will rise out of this. <laughs>
1: yeah it's gonna be interesting in nine months we'll see
0: lastly there is a question i ask from every guest on the podcast and it just really encapsulates what we've been talking about during this episode and that is what does science mean to you
1: yes science i think is what kind of makes up the as cheesy as it is but you know you can create positive change through science and it's through science that all these uh, crazy inventions or or treatments or all these kind of positive impacts that the world has had has come through science and um it's very unique to any individual like we we're touching upon about earlier was that you know it really doesn't matter who you are or what you've done anyone can have a change in science and that to me, is fascinating. I think that if you have the mindset and drive to make something work and the perseverance to kind of make a change in the world for the positive, science is the way to go, and science is what allows you to do exactly that. And um, I think that's very evident in everyone who has been on this podcast, uh, especially you, uh, you and I, and and I think that science allows, um, you know, not only – everyone but um especially the younger generations to create a a positive change in their world and and really um kind of make a positive impact on the matters that matter most to them
0: very well put because the possibilities are really endless i believe um that this podcast episode and all the inspirational messages you've shared including your journey has really ignited hope in many of the listeners
1: thank you so much for having me i love listening to to all the work and, and all the people who have been on this uh podcast and listening to you and your insights thank you so much for having me and I, I very i enjoyed my time so thank you
0: i really love to hear that and uh thank you so much it was a pleasure for my part as well Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.